Who owns your favorite sports team? There are still the Jerry Joneses and Mark Cubans of the world that drive their team with cult of personality. But more and more, family-owned teams are being replaced by corporate ownership for more financial stability. The owners of the Philadelphia 76ers, New Jersey Devils, and Crystal Palace of the English Premier League created a new organization called Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment, or HBSE, with the goal of acquiring and growing sports franchises and venues. Owning one franchise is difficult. But owning several, across different sports, and in different countries all over the world presents its own set of problems and opportunities. I sat down with Scott O'Neill and Hugh Weber of HBSE to find out what it's like combining sports and business. Stay tuned at the end of the interview for a sneak peek of the next episode of The Narrative. But until then, enjoy the show. I'm here with HBSE CEO Scott O'Neill and HBSE President Hugh Weber. It's great to have you on the show, guys. It's great to be here. It is. We're thrilled to be here with you. Even the most devoted sports fans really only pay attention to team ownership when they're doing a bad job. So what does it mean to own one team versus what does it mean to own several teams across a lot of different sports? Sure. I I will um, say that Josh Harris and David Blitzer are an interesting and eclectic mix between the old school family owner, because this is certainly run like a family, and it's a nice blend of that with the corporate ownership, which is, let's run this business like a business. And part of being like a business is, as um, as I've been, I've, as I've heard said before, you're either growing or you're dying, and we're certainly growing. And so they're, they're the kinds of people that, we, you know, I want to be around. They've got great values, they love their families, and they believe that sports and entertainment is a vehicle to change the world. And that's pretty fun, a pl- great platform to work from. And I gotta tell you, I've worked with, as Scott has as well, um, worked for both the models. The, the model, which is the family-owned business, which the, the, the sports team was their primary um, business. And we've worked for you know folks like Josh and David, who, you know, this they're really busy guys. They're putting together really big deals that are impacting the US economy on a really large scale. And this is something they're passionate about and something they're competitive about. But they let Scott and I do our work. They let us, um, they give us the vision, the resources, and then um, they rely on us to actually execute what, how these teams work. You talked about running these teams and these franchises like they're a business. But the th- first thing I think of when I think of like a, a group or a large conglomerate owning a bunch of teams is honestly Disney because I think of, you know, the Mighty Ducks years and, and when they owned the Orlando Magic and the, An- and the Anaheim Angels. And they were certainly successful. Financially, they had those hit movies that everybody knows and loves, but they weren't so great on the field necessarily. So how are you guys going to balance winning and profitability? The good thing is is they're inextricably linked. Um, You know, the the profitability of franchises goes up as the team performs on the court or on the ice or on the pitch. And you've seen we've taken a bit of a non-traditional approach to building uh, winning franchises. And that's because we have a real long-term view. You know, we don't have the short-term pressures that others might have. For us, at least from my perspective, is is we're going to do it the right way and we're going to build it to last. And to do that, we've got to be patient. And I think oftentimes, Harry, when you talk about business orientation to running teams, you're thinking about, like you, you mentioned, these big conglomerates. And that's not their core business. 
Disney's core business wasn't running two sports teams. This is our core business. This is what we do. And we, we attract uh, really highly skilled, talented people from this industry, create a culture that our core competency is running teams and making them really uh, focused on our fans and delivering expectations around our fans in the communities we represent. So, again, I, I think it's one thing to apply really high-level business practices to, uh, to teams. It's a totally another to say, hey, listen, this is a bureaucratic kind of a profit-only um, view because that's not the view we take. Uh, HBSE owns these teams, and it, they'd like to acquire more in the future. How do you manage to separate and still have under one roof all of these different teams in completely different sports? Right. So uh, we're fortunate that each property has an incredibly high-level, world-class leader, right? Chris Heck is the president of 76ers. And, and that, that's probably the case, you know, in terms of any well-run organization. You're going to find a leader that actually is, is um, making things happen at, at, on a day-to-day basis. And that's the case we have at every one of the entities we're talking about. And so um, the goal of HBSC is really more of how we can focus and align all of these separate leaders to be focused and aligned on the same thing globally. And that allows, hopefully, Scott, the ability to go out and do what he loves to do, which is put together more deals, right? I'd like to add there, just more simply, I think, is just when we look at the business, we think about, do we have the right structure in place? You know, are, are we structured right? Are we structured for growth? Secondly, talent, talent, talent. And I think Hugh hit on it. It's like we feel like we have the most talented group in the world. And thirdly, like, are we set up to make the world a little bit better? And that's how we see the world. And so, and that is our commitment to service and changing the communities we we operate in. We we're we're convinced we have the right structure to grow, and that we could add several properties with the existing infrastructure we have. So let's say there was a big four sports team on the market. How do you guys decide, yes, I want that team, or no, I don't? What, what goes into acquiring a new franchise? You've probably noticed, you know, the, the Rockets just went for over $2 billion. The Clippers went for over $2 billion. You know, IMG, not a sports franchise, but a sports conglomerate went for over $2 billion. And then UFC was just sold for $4 billion. And so the, the value of sports content continues to increase at a pretty incredible rate, which, which certainly gives us comfort in our, our properties now that they'll continue to grow in value, which is wonderful. Um, but it also puts uh, quite a bit of pressure on us if we were to be working towards um, acquiring another one. We look at things like market, you know, is the market attractive? We look at the current operation. Is it being optimized? Um, that, that wouldn't be ideal for us. You know, if you had just come off a World Series and you sold out all your tickets and you got this incredible media deal and your sponsorships are off the charts and all your suites are sold and your food and beverage deal is incredible, and the stadium arena is run at a world-class level, that's probably not for us. You know, we're, we're fixers, uh, we like value, and we like opportunities for growth. HBSE also works with venue. With the Chargers, with the Rams, with the Oakland Raiders, we've seen that venue is incredibly important in getting teams to stay where they are. I know that you guys uh, own the Prudential Center, which is where the, the Devils play. How does owning your stadium that your team plays in how does that help? How does it give you more freedom to maneuver your team? It gives us more freedom and more joy. You know, when you have the opportunity to control the experience, I mean, think about what, at the, what is at the heart of every decision we make is the fan. And so to be able to control the entertainment experience outside the arena and then how your ushers and ticket takers greet your, your fans when they come in, 
and what the food and beverage experience looks like and, and what your premium experience looks like. And, um, and I, I think having control of everything in the environment gives you a sense of, of, of freedom, joy, and opportunity. This is a good, uh, question that I've uh, honestly wanted to know for a long time, which is how does the money breakdown work? So you have different franchises, different sports across you know, all kinds of not only different leagues, different countries. So in, let's say, football, they have revenue sharing, right, where every team gets to share the revenue. So if you're from a small town, you know, a small city, you still make a similar amount of money. Is that is that going to be how it's like for the the franchises that you guys control? Or is it going to be more like based on what each team earns, they get a budget that is somewhat in, in scale? That's an interesting question. I, I would say that in a big caveat, it depends. Um, you know, it's our job to optimize the businesses. And so where one business might be on fire and it's selling out every game and sponsorships are growing at a crazy rate and ratings are increased and our social media is growing like crazy and we've, we've doubled down on our content, everything seems to be going great, we might pull money away from there in certain circumstances and give it to one of the properties as you're allocating resources that might need a little jump start. Or we might determine, depending on the situation, that, you know what, let's take every incremental spare dollar and take it to the to the lead horse and blow that up even bigger. So it's really going to depend on the on the circumstance. As Scott said, there's different opportunities based on leagues as well, right? So it's not only just team performance. It's not just fan affinity. It's not just how well you're selling in certain things. There's also certain um, you know restrictions around how leagues look at revenue and how they look at some different things. And I know this conversation is centric to our teams, but we also have the Grammy Museum. We also have Dignitas. There's a lot of other um, investments and properties that we're, we're engaged in. And I would say nine times out of 10, it's never an issue of where we're allocating dollars. It's always where we're allocating time. Because there's only so much time in, a day, in, in the day, and there's only so much that our organization can do. Nine time, time times out of 10, Scott and I are saying, that's not worth our time. One of the big words that I, I, I pulled down when I was reading about uh, HBSE was international, right? And so you have the EPL team, Crystal Palace, uh, that's English Premier League, and you also have the esports team, Dignitas, which could play international competitions. How do you look to extend reach to other countries? Are you looking more to acquire franchises that maybe already exist in these places, or are you going to try to build brands for the teams that you have in other countries like the like basketball is doing in China and all kinds of other places where they have these these games or is it a combination of both I'll give you a, I mean there are several examples of I think um, where we're partnering with the leagues um, to get us there right now so you, Nico Hershier is our number one overall pick with the Devils and uh, the NHL called us uh, about a month or so back and said hey can you switch your your opening game it's a Saturday game to 2 p.m. because we'd like to feature it in Europe and what, what an advantage for the New Jersey Devils brand to be featured so prominently in a European broadcast. Like a number one overall pick, he's ridiculously skilled and talented and a, and a great leader and he's going to be a future star in this league. On the, that's one example. On the, on the Sixers side, you know, we had Jared Ballas go over to Israel with a Basketball Without Borders program this summer and working with um, Israeli and Palestinian kids and using basketball as a, as a bridge to bring them together. We had Joel Embiid in uh, South Africa with the NBA, um, working on a working with uh, the NBA on a on a um, NBA Africa program. 
again, spreading basketball to an incredible continent that, that seems to have a thirst for it. And Ben Simmons was over in Australia doing a whole host of community and basketball events for children in Australia. And so we have a very international presence. What I think you'll see from us going forward is how is we're challenging ourselves now and our content teams to try to figure out how do we create content in smart, uh, bite-sized bites in native tongues uh, where we have the most fans. So you will likely see content driven from our properties in Mandarin. You're going to see it in French. You're going to see it in Spanish. You're going to see it in Croatian. And we're going to continue to drive content where the fans are around the world. Um. So this is a, a big question that I've uh, had, too, and I think it's one that uh, a lot of fans will be asking themselves, and, and it'll be a really valuable to answer it, which would be, on the ground level, for your average fan, what changes about the fan experience of going to a Sixers game or a Devils game, or, or does anything change? Yeah, I, I think what you're going to see is, um, you know, for the average fan, for the person that's – it's going to be very symbiotic. It's not going to be anything different about how we do things. Um, I think more than anything, we're going to have more resources to do it. So if you think to the um, example we used earlier of where teams need resources at certain times, um, you know, each season is a little bit different and each league is a little bit different. Uh, we believe that we'll be able to do smarter, better promotions uh, for our fans. We'll be able to engage them in smarter, better ways in social media. We'll be able to create better content because, again, we'll have kind of a, a common voice of the way we're doing things and, and better resources to do it. So to us, it's all about qualitative improvements over time. And as opposed to the policy things that fans normally see, um, we see no changes in the way we do our business. I would just like to add the the one piece that that maybe more be subtle and be seen over time is like we wouldn't be able to attract the talent that we have if we had one franchise or one organization. I mean, just in this room with with Hugh Weber, um, he's a world class executive, and and this is more interesting to him if we have three organizations or four organizations or five organizations which you can touch: Laura Toscani Weems, the great corporate communications wizard, and Czar. It'd be very difficult to hold her for very long if we had one one franchise. She wants to do big things. Now on the fun stuff. Oh boy. Clean transition, right guys? Let's do it. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> I wouldn't characterize the other stuff as not being fun, just so you know. Oh yeah? Yeah, it was fun. So my first fun question. You guys can acquire one fictional sports team. What sports team do you buy? The Gas House Gorillas. I don't even know what does that mean? Do you know who they are? No. Bugs Bunny played against him. <laughs> That's a deep cut. Yeah, the Gas House Gorillas are a bunch of dirty players. Why well, I could lick them in a ball game with one hand tied behind my back. Listen, it's, it's one of the great sports uh, games of all time when Bugs squared off against the Gas House Gorillas. Is that pre First base Bugs pre Bunny, second base Bugs Bunny, third base Bugs Bunny, shortstop Bugs Bunny, <laughs> pitching Bugs Bunny, right field Bugs Bunny, center field Bugs Bunny, left field Bugs Bunny, catching Bugs Bunny. You have one? Did Charlie Brown have a team? He, I know he got punked every time by Lucy. but So, and this one comes with a caveat. You can't pick the Prudential Center. Prudential Center. Damn. Wells Fargo. Uh, <laughs> which is the best <laughs> sports venue you've been to, and why? what makes it so great? The Palestra in Philadelphia. I think it's the greatest college basketball venue in the world. Well, the final score in all the basketball game you could ever hope to see before a capacity crowd at the Palestra in it has history, it has tradition, it has the banners. You can almost envision the cigar smoke rising up to the rafters with the fans, which, believe it or not, I'm this old. When I went to, to see Villanova play there when I was in college, they, could, they were still allowed cigar smoking. 
in the arena. It's small enough. It seats about 6,000. Uh, the acoustics are unbelievable. It's loud, proud. You can stomp your feet. You can yell and scream. And I just think it's the perfect basketball venue. I am going to go uh, non-traditional, and I'm going to say Augusta. It's one of the greatest sporting events I've ever been to is the Masters. And that place, I've never seen a pine needle out of place. And for someone who actually would think to put something like that on, I know it's a tremendous amount of work that they must do for an entire year. So That's I did a, have the opportunity to play there. Shot a 107. But... but <laughs> <laughs> but, however, I birdied number seven. Nice. I gave a little bird dance around the green, which they said had never been done there before. And uh, otherwise, I four-putted just about every hole. Did, the did greens you, are a little quick. Did you get to finish, or did they kick you off after seven? No, That's no, no they, they let me finish, but, but the caddy, <laughs> this is a quick little story. The caddy, I had the only young caddy, and I was playing with real golfers, and I'm not a real golfer, obviously. And um, I said, look, I'm not really sure what club to pick up and he's like you know don't even worry about it like you know give me two holes and i'll be able to club you one way or the other and so by the fifth call, hole i, I hit, a, hit a ball like 20 yards over the green i looked at the caddy like hey you said you were gonna be able to club caddy me error. he said i have never ever carried a bag for anybody that has this kind of range he's like you're 40 yards back to front <laughs> on each of your clubs so that's a tough round all in all so my last uh, fun question is so what fictional sport would you guys want to acquire a team for? And I've got, I've got some examples if you need some examples. I do. So, I, for instance, basketball. Uh, we've got Blurns Ball from Futurama kind of thing. Do you have dodgeball on there? Dodgeball? I guess dodgeball is a real sport, but it's yeah. not a real professional sport. I'll allow it. I'm going to go dodgeball. love the movie, and I think I'd be excellent. Yeah, can you create one? Like, how cool would it be like, to what? play basketball on skates? Seriously. Yeah, that's like rollerball. Yeah, ro- roller derby. derby. Nice. Yeah, I'm going re- to re- retract my answer and, and hop onto Hughes. Roller derby. derby. All right. Rollerball. Roller Remember that movie? <laughs> Is that where they put the Tron? No, no, that was a different one. They put the ball in the... Yeah, it's, so it, it's uh, they have like roller blades and there's like a magnetic... Yes. thing and it's kind of like a goal but it's like roller derby plus a ball and a magnet true story awesome Real movie. uniforms and um some people got hurt That's yeah mad max feel yes. kind of going on yes well hugh scott thank you so much for joining us and i hope all the best for hbse harry we hope to be back soon yeah. amen Special thanks for this episode goes out to Hugh Weber, Scott O'Neill, and Laura Toscani-Weems. If you like the show, you can do us a huge favor by subscribing and leaving a rating or a review. Feedback on the podcast boosts us up the charts and gets the narrative in front of more people. Or you can do that the old-fashioned way by sharing us with a friend. You can tweet about the show using the hashtag SINarrative. I'm at Harry Swartout on Twitter. And as always, for more on the stories moving the world of sport, log on to SI.com. Now, here's a sneak peek of the next episode of The Narrative. My team, the the Golden Aztecs, was American football in Mexico. He said, uh, why don't you get a team in the uh, semi-pro league and uh, see if there really is interest in Mexico that some of our people think may be there? 
So I immediately went went to work, put together the team. Real easy to get 40 good football players. And so I came back, got ready to go, had a, had a very competitive team, kicked off, did real well. That exciting, crowd-pleasing brand of play that is building more and more fan support for the young and growing Continental Football League. Like we're going to have a big crowd. It had about 30,000 people there that night. As I moved around through the stadium, I was asked a lot of questions. But why did they do this? Why did they do that? And I realized that the people who came to that game were principally there because of what they call the spectacular of the halftime show. Well, sure enough, the next game, we drew half that many. By the time we got to the fifth game, you know, we don't have but a handful of people there, and I think there were maybe 250 people in the stands. So I came back and uh, knew that I was not going to go back down there. Mm-hmm.